So we're not using that because ANSI is not as stringent as the International Residential Code, which is now combined with Appendix Q. It complies to the most rigorous code, which incorporates Appendix Q. Welcome to the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast, the show where you learn how to plan, build, and live the tiny lifestyle. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and this is episode 139 with Vina Lestado. When it comes to designing tiny homes, Vina is the real deal. Her iconic soul house and soul pod homes are beautiful, light-filled examples of high tiny design, and Vina has lived tiny for many years and in several locations. As a California resident, Vina has seen the destructive and traumatic effects of wildfires and has answered the call in the best way she knows how by designing a prefab tiny home that can be permitted as an ADU in California and has several fire-resistant design elements. In this interview, we'll talk about the new design, the approach that Vina took, and the differences that you have to take into consideration when designing a stationary tiny house versus a mobile one. I hope you stick around. But before we get started, did you know that I personally send a tiny house newsletter every week on Tuesdays? It's called Tiny Tuesdays, and it's a weekly email with tiny house news, interviews, photos, and resources. It's free to subscribe, and I even share sneak peeks of things that are coming up, ask for feedback about upcoming podcast guests, and more. It's really the best place to keep a pulse on what I'm doing in the tiny house space and also stay informed of what's going on in the tiny house movement. To sign up, go to thetinyhouse.net slash newsletter, where you can sign up for the Tiny Tuesdays newsletter. And of course, you can unsubscribe at any time. I will never send you spam. And if you ever don't want to receive emails, it's easy to unsubscribe. So again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash newsletter. Thanks, and I hope you enjoy next week's Tiny Tuesdays newsletter. I am here with Vina Lustado. Vina is both a tiny house dweller and a professional designer. Her designs incorporate lots of light and open space with a focus on how space is used by the inhabitants. She is the founder of Soul House Design, a boutique firm with a focus on sustainable design and building in Ojai, California. After receiving an architecture degree and more than 20 years of experience with high-end corporate clients, Vina decided to focus her career on smaller-scale projects that could make a positive difference. Staying true to her values, Vina lives full-time in her tiny house, which she designed and built with the help of friends. Vina's home has been featured in media publications, books, and television. She is also a proud recipient of FWN Global 100 Most Influential Women and has been a featured speaker at Yale University on social entrepreneurship. Vina Lustado, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Ethan. You're welcome. Well, or I should say welcome back to the show. Um, you know, not this second, but people who are listening to this episode should go back and listen to our first interview where we talked a lot about your your tiny house story and and those designs. And the reason that I, I asked you to come back on the show, among other things, was that you just made a big announcement about a new prefab modular house. Um, 
can you give us kind of the overview of of the of the project before we kind of dive into some of the details? Sure. Thanks again for um, allowing me to talk about this because it's kind of a long effort that I started. I would say a couple of years ago to try to find a way to make tiny houses legal because that's been such a roadblock for many people. And so I wanted to come up with a solution that was easily permitted and that was legal straight off the bat. So that, that was my motivation. And I always felt that factory building or modular prefab housing was a way to make quality housing affordable. So I brought those two th things together and came up with a solution by providing a tiny house that's on a foundation, but still somewhat mobile. Got it. Maybe actually, I'm thinking that that we've all heard these words, modular and prefab, kicked around. But could you just explain what modular is and what prefab is? A great question, Ethan. Um, so. Prefab modular housing is where it's built in a factory. Technically, at least in the confines of California codes, it's a manufactured housing that's built in a factory that's certified under state regulations. So it's different from a mobile home because mobile homes or RV homes are governed under a different set of codes, which is federal by ANSI. So that's a federal code compliance um, mod code. The prefab modular is under factory built housing, which is regulated by the state. In California, it's HCD, Housing Community and Development. So they're the ones who permit the structure. And it's basically a structure that's completely done in a factory. It's, it's not necessarily something like panelized, you know, like SIP, but it's, it's all done in the factory and then gets shipped to the site. And a lot of modular homes, prefabricated modular homes are done in modules separate, you know, from each other. And the whole thing gets assembled at the site because usually there are many different modules. Got it. Okay, so when when they're using when they're doing a prefab modular home that is a more traditional size, it would be coming in multiple modules that they would then piece together on site. Exactly. So you know, it has to travel down the road. So in a way it's a little bit similar to the trailer tiny house because it has to comply to Department of Transportation Requirements, DOT. But the big difference there is it's prepared or built like traditional stick-built homes, international residential code requirements, which is what stick-built construction needs to comply to, as opposed to tiny homes on wheels or movable tiny homes. They're usually governed by ANSI or the federal um, code for it's it's not it's not um international res uh international residential code it's under ANSI got it so the unit that you designed the module that you designed is is 10 by 26 so it's 260 square feet 
Um, it's got a bedroom, a kitchen, and a bathroom. Um, how much? How much does it cost, and what is included in in the price? So, the price discussion is a little bit complicated because what I'm proposing is something that also includes the permitting system wow. with the state. So after working 20 years in the industry, I understand and empathize with many homeowners who have difficulties with the permitting process and even the construction. So what I'm trying to do is reduce the cost by streamlining the process with permitting and construction. And this modular prefabricated system allows that because it's all built in a factory, which is a lot more efficient than building it on the site. And it's permitted with the state because it needs to be inspected in the factory as opposed to the actual property. So that alone streamlines the process, but, and so therefore reduces the cost overall. And it's not just looking at the structure, it's look, looking at the process of permitting and construction. Got it. And also the materials and, um, you know, eco-friendly aspects of it is really important to me. And I see this also as a kind of a forever home where it's not something you live in for a few years. It's going to be for the long haul. So the material quality is a lot higher than, let's say, an RV or um, mobile home. And because it's under the international residential code, it has to comply to Title 24, which is energy efficiency and seismic in California, which is about earthquakes and fire resistance. So I'm addressing all of those issues at the same time. Um, so with that said, I'm trying to um, finalize the cost now with two factory builders, and they're quoting me at this point about 120,000. Um, but that's still to be verified as I go through the final drawings with them. Got it. Another, I just want to say another distinction is this includes the cabinetry, the appliances, the light fixtures, the flooring. So it's a turnkey solution where you basically just move in. And the only thing that needs to be done in, on the site is attaching the foundation to the structure. So when it leaves the factory, it's turnkey. You basically have a finished structure ready to be moved in. Nice. As opposed to you know, traditional housing, a lot of the times you have to finish out the um, I don't know, the flooring or a lot of the furnishings are included in my unit because it's so specific to the inches that a lot of it is built in and the light fixtures and the appliances, you know, all the washer and dryers, although that is an option, but all the plumbing fixtures and appliances are included. Nice. So you actually not in, in addition to designing it and and getting those designs permitted you also have gone through the work of finding a factory basically finding a builder for this um well that's that's the big puzzle because i can't feel in good conscience to propose something that's affordable without knowing exactly what 
the final cost for the client is who wants to buy the unit. Because designing something is one thing, but actually having it built is totally another cost. So I've talked to a couple of factory builders who have already gone through you know, the drawings with me and said that they're able to build it, but I still wanna maintain the price point and the quality that's um, you know, most appealing for everyone. What are some aspects of the, the home that makes it environmentally friendly? Um, so energy efficiency is really important to me. In California, there's strict requirements for the insulation value of the walls and the floor and the roof. So I'd like to have non-toxic insulation like rock wool or um, denim and some other alternative insulation, but it, it also depends on the builder, what they have relationships with the suppliers they already have. And all of the plumbing fixtures are energy star rated, all the appliances so that, you know, it's water saving and the consumption for like the hot water heater and um, any other electrical appliances would have minimal um, electrical load, refrigerators, et cetera. Non-toxicity of the building materials are really important to me also. I have so many clients who come to me who are chemically sensitive, who cannot stay in their home because they're sick from mold or other toxic materials inside their home. So I know this firsthand where if you have a lot of formaldehyde in the um, plywood or a lot of um, off-gassing in the paints and the sealants and other finished materials, then it can really be you know, sickly for the resident. So I specified with the builders, we cannot have any toxic off-gassing inside. A client actually approached me about EMF also to see if we can do that. And there's definitely options for that with the paint. And can you, can you explain what that is for people who don't know? EMF, I think stands for emissivity. It's like the frequency radiation that comes off with your phones and other devices that could be harmful for, you know, your body. Yeah. So you're trying to minimize the that frequency getting inside the home. So I've done this before with other projects where if we specified a certain paint on, on the walls, it blocks out the, like that radiation or emissivity from that side to the inside. And so these are also more fire resistant than than a a typical home what are some things about it what what are part of the design that makes it more fire resistant so as you know california is so subject to fires everywhere it's hard to escape in california and even in colorado now and other places throughout the country so i'm designing it for high fire hazard zones which is in many parts of california and one of the important things to consider is not necessarily the walls, but actually the roof, because fire is caused by wind that's very far reaching. So the roof material quickly 
gets inflamed when embers catch it. So instead of using like standard asphalt composition roof tiles, I'm specifying standing sea metal roof so that it's the most fire resistant material for roofs. And also the attic space, every time you have a vent in the attic space, it's easy to catch the vent, the embers inside the vents. So of course my units have vaulted ceilings, so there's no attic. And the material on the exterior siding is a cement board panel. So instead of wood, which I often love, like cedar siding, it's not really good for high fire hazard zones. So the cement board by Hardy panel is what I use, which is a very high fire resistant, it's considered class A, which is the rating for fire resistant material. So I'm specifying that as a standard siding for all my um, modular prefabs. Fantastic. So is this the kind of thing that that could be moved in the event of a fire or is it, you know, it's it's pretty well tied down, not something that you can just pick up quickly? Yeah, um, so it's not on wheels. It's uh, put on girders or um, kind of a, it's, it's moved on a flatbed truck. So when it goes on the site, it gets attached with a lag bolt on a perimeter foundation, concrete masonry block units. So it's not really meant to be moved very often. Let's say every few years we're able to design it so we can access the bottom plate with the lag bolt and they can just grind down the lag bolt so then it could be released from the foundation so it could be moved every few years if need be for you know the owner to want to move to another state because of a job or to take care of parents or or whatnot so it is it is doable for it to be moved it seems like it's more designed, though, to to act as an ADU and to be a permanent addition to an existing property. Exactly correct. And I think I think you know, and definitely my experience, most people who have tiny homes on wheels don't really want to move it around too much. You know, Alexis and Christian, the tiny house expedition move around a lot, but um, that's more rare than typical. Yeah. And actually, recently, I think they're more, more um, stable. But most people who live in tiny homes on wheels want to stay at their location. So I think this isn't really a stretch for most people. Sure. Yeah. I agree. I agree. And I, I will affirm that you know, I, I've moved my tiny house once in seven years. So, <laughs> and that's just recently. Yeah, it'll move again though because that this move is to kind of a temporary spot while we figure out what what we're gonna do. Um, and I've moved mine much offered much more often than you did. You so have. I think I've moved mine like four or five times already <laughs> um, during the eight years that I've owned it. Wow. So. So 
I do want to, I want to catch up about, about all that stuff, but I want to ask more about, uh, the prefab unit. Um, I know that codes and, you know, are so confusing to so many people, myself (laughs) included. Um, so you are using a state permitting process for this project. Does that have anything to do with Appendix Q and the IRC, or is it a, just a California thing? Maybe you could you could set me straight on this. Absolutely. No, those are great questions. So Appendix Q is part of the International Residential Code. And if people don't know what Appendix Q is, it was in existence about two years ago that was proposed by a group of tiny house dwellers and Andrew Morrison and Gabriella and Macy, a lot of tiny house advocates pushed for it. And so it's basically making it official in the International Residential Code that any residence or any dwelling that's under 400 square feet will be in compliance with the building code, which means before things like the loft, was, could not be considered a legal bedroom. If you have an upstairs loft that has a ladder, that wasn't legal in the International Residential Code because you can't have a ladder as a deemed fire or life safety to go up to a sleeping loft. And also the height of uh, a loft was not legal under the international residential code before. So Appendix Q addresses all those things because you can't have a normal bedroom in a tiny house or um, a ladder. I mean, a ladder has to be legalized as a way to go to the upper level. So those things had been addressed to make sure that they do comply for life safety. And so that's what that did. That's what the Appendix Q did. And the typical tiny house on wheels code is ANSI. So we're not using that because ANSI is, or RVIA certification, which is compliant to ANSI, is not as stringent as the International Residential Code, which is now combined with Appendix Q. So what my unit does is it complies to the most rigorous code, which is International Residential Code, which incorporates um, Appendix Q. Okay. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, (laughs) no. That that definitely (laughs) makes sense. It's very confusing. um, And that was actually one of the clearest explanations I've ever heard. So thank you. I feel like I need to make a chart. This is IRC, which is Appendix Q. Yeah. This is ANSI, which is like RVIA. This is mobile mobile homes and our, I think RVs are the same, which is HUD, H-U-D, which is a federal code. So, you know, those are like three different codes, mm-hmm. two plus the other one. Mm-hmm. Now is NOAA, are you familiar with NOAA code? Yeah, NOAA uh, certifies under AMSI, which is RIA. Yeah. They're a certifier. Yeah. Exactly. So, NOAA is a third party certification. Got it. And who 
I've been using, which is really with the factory builders, is RADCO. That's the state third-party certification. So if NOAA is the third-party certification for RVIA or ANSI, then RADCO is the third-party certification for HCD or the state. Okay. Who's the third-party certifier for a tiny home that's built under IRC, under Appendix Q? Yeah, so that would be Radco. Radco, okay. Okay. Yeah. So I've been talking to them a lot and I researched them before I spoke to the factory builders because they have to go through Radco to be certified as a factory builder with the state. Right. So now okay, so now I feel like we've we've gotten back to my original question about how this unit is permitting. Um and the state, the state permitting process, this HCD thing, which I have, I have no idea what that is. Yeah, because that's actually for California. Okay. So I don't know what it is in other parts of the country, but I know California is the most, one of the most rigorous, if not maybe the most rigorous in all uh-huh. of the United States. So um, when you go through the permitting process traditionally with um a stick built house, you have to go with the local jurisdiction, the city or the county jurisdiction, mm-hmm. and you have to apply for a zoning clearance or approval from the planning department. And then once they approve that, you have to go through the building department, and that's a whole rigorous process. So, what I'm doing is I'm working directly with the factory builder and the state to get that permit for the structure which is HCD compliance, which is housing community development under the state of California. So by, by doing that, we're minimizing all of the rigorous process with, um, with the local jurisdiction, because for instance, they only have two inspections, which is not even in person. Sometimes they can do it, you know, by phone or some more efficient process. And the cost is incredibly minimized because for whatever reason, it's just a lot less like for them to charge their hourly fees. And it's partly because the factory builders have already gone through a rigorous process to getting certified with their warehouse, with their factory, that they already have this thick manual in place so they basically just send a set of drawings and um, if they've already done similar projects with, you know, w- with this factory, then they've already gone through a lot of the steps and makes it a lot more efficient. So typically a guest house, my experience in Ventura and Southern California, the permit is like $25,000 or $20,000. It's insane <laughs> here in, in California. Oh my gosh. You can That's build. Just permitting. You could build a tiny house for that much. For that. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And that's why I'm up in arms about all this because it's, you're, you're, you're putting all your construction into the budget, into the permitting. So that's just ridiculous. Right. And the HCD process is. I don't know exactly because I haven't been quoted, but I think it's a few thousand dollars, like 3000 or so. And that's all part of them being certifying it. 
So like with the construction. So for instance, if the builder tells me it's going to be $120,000 for this structure, in general, that includes the permitting already. And then once that's permitted, you get that registration from or certification from HCD, and that goes to the local building department when you submit for permit um, for the foundation. And as soon as they see that, they pretty much say, okay, great. And we just need to look at your foundation and that's it. So when I called the local city here for this project, because a client has already said they want to build this unit here in Santa Paula, where I'm located. I've already called the city here in Santa Paula and they said it's gonna cost like $4,000 and it's gonna take a week versus six months or a year <laughs> to permit. And the process with the state for the structure itself for the factory building takes three months. I would say actually three months for the building and I think for the permitting because they have to get the permit from the state first before they start building. It probably takes, you know, a few weeks. Wow. So it's really sped up the process, it sounds like. It's extremely streamlined. Yeah. So given that these permitting processes are different in every state, you know, can these units be placed outside of California? So I am doing this right now, obviously for California. And I think once we have the registration in California, you can take it anywhere and you can show them the drawings like in New York or anywhere, and they can probably easily stamp it and permit it also, I would imagine, because we have the strictest code. So I'll just give you another scenario. When you are a licensed architect in one state, for instance, like let's say from New York to California or some other state to California, California has so many other requirements on top of what the rest of the states have. So you have to take additional tests in California if you want to be a registered licensed architect. So if you think of it in that kind of parallel way, we're the most strict. So if you were to go to another state, it's easy for them to probably permit it also. Of course, you have to consider the weather. It's, you know, but the way I'm designing this unit is it'll comply to pretty you know, hot and cold, not extreme cold like the Arctic, because <laughs> that'll require a snow load that's cost prohibitive with huge rafters and much thicker insulation that will bring the cost so much. But in general, you know, it's pre in pretty cold and pretty hot climates, and the earthquake requirements um, will probably not be in existence in other states for the foundation. So I'm trying to think of, you know, the, the worst case scenario, but not to the point where it's really cost prohibitive. Got it. So maybe you can tell me about what the foundation work is like and what's needed to be able to place a unit like this down and what, like, what does that cost usually? 
Yeah, so what we're proposing typically on a flat level site that has very, you know, typical soil characteristics because the foundation, the footing is based on the type of soil. So we're taking the worst case scenario. Usually it's like a 27 inch high, the foundation, a stem wall that's um, concrete masonry units. So it only takes a matter of a flat side to dig in about, yeah, 27 inches deep. And so it's going to be about two feet off the ground. Um, and it's at the perimeter, you know, 10 feet wide by 26 feet long. And that two foot cavity underneath the unit will serve as the access point for all the utilities so that all the piping and conduits will be underground and access underground. And I would say, I think the contractor builder estimated for a really typical flat level site would be about 20,000 um, to do the foundation. And usually it's, um, the utilities are hooked up to the main house. So it doesn't need to have separately metered utilities. It could just share it with the main house. So depending on the length of that distance to the main house, the cost would vary. And of course, there's things like the deck, which I always advocate for in a tiny house and other site work that you may need to have like grading, et cetera. So those are other costs that is hard to estimate because all properties are different. Right, right. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, I'm just smiling because there's a there's a lot of wisdom in the idea of just sticking a house on a trailer and avoiding avoiding that foundation cost and avoiding those permitting fees and all those things, but I also recognize that as this movement becomes more mainstream and becomes a, an, a viable option for more people, that it, it has to grow up a little bit. And we have to start talking about permitting and foundations and, and all these things. Well, again, California is such a misnomer because I, my partner, parents live in Kansas, and he was enclosing this deck for his parents. And he said he went down to the building department to get it permitted. And he said it was $5 for the permit. And it took him two seconds. And he drew up the plan in a napkin or graph paper. Nice. It's, it's so California, I just think is just not typical. Okay. And I think if you were to do, you know, I, I, I absolutely understand the value of tiny homes on wheels without having to go through the permitting process. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> they both have their merits. So is this unit, so this is built in a factory. Is it, what is the wall? What is the building envelope? Is it is it stick framed? Is it a SIP? Is it something else? What is it? Yeah, I'm using just two by four wood frame construction on um, girders, and my and then you know it's all wood frame stick build construction practically. But my factory builder is in combining that with steel like a moment frame on the corners because that allows him to locate openings 
really flexibly along the wall without having to re-engineer like the headers and how big they are. So it's a, that's another reason why it's a little bit more costly for this builder because it's a lot more rigid in structure and um, it allows for maximum flexibility in the opening. So I can have, you know, eight foot wide glass <laughs> doors and windows, you know, in his system. So that reminds me a little bit of like advanced framing where, you know, the entire top plate is kind of a header and then mm -hmm. all the openings don't have to have this crazy, you know, header that is just a big thermal bridge. Exactly. Yeah. So that's, that's one system he's used that's worked for him. And, um, that's also another reason why it's harder to locate on the site. He has to use a crane as opposed to just like, a, what is it, a forklift? Um, because it's a heavier structure because of the steel. So um, that's something to consider for accessibility on the site because you need to have ideally a shorter distance from the street to the backyard so you're not reaching the crane so far over and you can't have too many trees and power lines that'll obstruct it. So those are some of the big things that we need to consider in these units is accessibility and not much of a slope for the driveway and even the route from, you know, the factory to the final location, which is something I need to consider for anyone outside of California, of course. But yeah, a lot of people have asked for other states, even other countries like the Philippines. Wow. <laughs> um, but that's a whole other <laughs> future. I day. think that'll be your that'll be your shipping container design for yeah. to, to easily transport on a cargo ship. <laughs> I wouldn't advocate that's not very low impact and the weather is totally different yeah. and the materials are total. I would say just look at another building type completely. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely. So you, you recently moved your two tinies, right? I did. So, um, I was living in Ojai and the owner, so as many people in Ojai, they're subjected to all these skyrocketing um, costs for housing. And so my land owner, the, who I rented from, she didn't want to try to keep up with her mortgage, the increasing property taxes. Her kids had graduated from school. It was just her maintaining the entire two-acre property. So she decided to sell it and it sold like hotcakes like, within a few days because <laughs> Ohio is so sought after. So I had to move um, and I knew I'd have to move again if I didn't locate it on my property that I owned. Um, so I decided not to relocate to Ohio because I knew I would have to move it yet again. So I decided to just put it on my property, which I do own in near Yosemite in Oakhurst. So both my tiny office and tiny houses there. And 
my work is still here in Southern California, so I have to stay here. So I'm now renting a duplex, which is a normal house, completely different from my tiny house. So it's the first time I've actually lived in a normal house. Wow. So how, how many years did you live tiny and, and maybe any observations about like going back to a, a big house? The refrigerator is huge. <laughs> <laughs> I just can't seem to find, buy enough food to fill it. And yeah, it's, it's interesting because it took me a while to get used to, you know, to such, such space um, and losing things and having to fill the rooms. But interestingly enough, I think I may have told you, or we've spoken about this, where our tiny houses are so efficient. We have so much efficient storage that when you go into a normal house, usually the storage is not very good. So I wind up being more inefficient, even though I have more space, like my office space, which is one of the bedrooms. You know, it's, it's a decent sized office. I mean, room, but there just isn't enough room for storage. So I, I wind up needing more space because it doesn't have enough storage capability. Yeah. That's a really, that's a good observation. It is true. We build so much efficient storage into these tiny homes that when you go into a normal, normal house, it just seems so stupid. Yeah. And I, I do feel excess. I mean, you know, I, you wind up subconsciously buying more when you think, I don't really need this. If I lived in a tiny house, I wouldn't really even consider buying this. <laughs> yeah. But it, there are nice um, advantages. Like I have an oven for the first time I can bake food, which is a whole new world for me. And um I can use, you know, like a Vitamix, a real blender that's big. Um, yeah, that's a real luxury. And I just recently also bought a, what is that? An Instapot? Like, so, yeah, the kitchen definitely is nice to have a bigger kitchen. I don't need to have a giant refrigerator, but, you know, nice, spacious workspace for the kitchen to have these other appliances are nice. Totally. Well, I, I usually ask guests for, for book or resource recommendations, but you were already on the show and so you've already given us those recommendations. So I'm curious, is there anything in the tiny house movement right now that you're excited about that you're looking forward to? You know, I think we're just transitioning. I, I don't know if it's because I'm now more in the prefab modular world. But I think housing is transitioning to a lot of alternative models. So the idea of factory building, and of course, DIYers should always be um, empowered and it should always be available. But I think many people who are not capable of building their own home and 
the factory building model with the prefab is just seems, you know, a way to um, have it more available for mass produced quality housing. So that's kind of what I'm, I'm seeing a lot of that happening. And yeah, the, the tiny homes on wheels, there's a lot more people who are getting it legal, legalized all over the country. Um, you had Dan Fitzpatrick on the show recently. So he's been doing a lot of work on that. Those are for ADUs. So I hope it's gonna be more available to primary dwellings, not just for backyard housing that, you know, is a primary dwelling. And another, I'd, I'd love to just have it legal as a community for tiny houses instead of backyard units and not necessarily an RV park or a mobile home park, but just, you know, three or four or five, six, dwellings on one property that's legal. I wish that's, that's really what I would like to see as a community. Yeah. It's, I think it's, it is slowly starting to happen. Um, but, and, and you're one of the people who are helping to make it happen. So thank you for your time to, and telling us about your new project, Vina Listado. Thank you so much. Thank you. Ethan. That was fun. Thank you so much to Vina Lostado for being a guest on the show. You can find the show notes from today's episode, including links to Vina's website and lots of photos of the new prefab unit at thetinyhouse.net slash 139. Again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash 139. Don't forget to check out and subscribe to the Tiny Tuesdays newsletter at thetinyhouse.net slash newsletter. Well, that's all for this week. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and I'll be back next week with another episode of the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast.